This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canira. Thanks for joining us. Some kinds of science are improved with the help of faster computers and more robust and automated systems to collect and process data, but many kinds of research require a more hands-on approach, and that just takes more hands. Citizen science is the collection and analysis of data relating to the natural world by everyday people who aren't necessarily scientists themselves, typically as part of a collaborative project with professional scientists. In other words, giving scientists more hands to collect the information they need to better understand whatever it is they are studying. On today's show, we're going to learn about a UF IFAS extension and Florida Sea Grant citizen science program called Eyes on Seagrass that has been collecting information about seagrasses in Upper Charlotte Harbor and Lemon Bay since 2019 and is planning to expand into Lee County next year. I spoke yesterday with the Florida Sea Grant agent in Charlotte County who leads the program as well as one of the people who volunteer their time in the water collecting information. Let's hear that now. Kate Rose is a Florida Sea Grant agent who works out of the UF IFAS Extension Office in Charlotte County. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming down to chat with us. Thanks for having us. And Rick Sluzeski is an Eyes on Seagrass volunteer. Rick, thanks to you as well. You're welcome. Kate, for starters, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and the work that you do as a uh, Sea Grant agent with UF IFAS. Yeah, so I I was just telling Rick this, actually, in our our drive on the way down. I could say probably my career started when I was about 10 years old. My dad got me scuba certified, and I just, I never quit. I grew up in New Jersey, and I got my scuba certification down here in the Keys. And I remember thinking, like, wanting to go home and tell my friends, does everybody know that this cool stuff under the water is down here? (laughs) And, you know, that's kind of what I get to do with Florida Sea Grant is a lot of environmental ed and connecting people with their natural resources, which is great. Uh, Before we get started on this program, tell us, uh, give us our pitch for the importance of seagrass to our ecosystems and, by extension, our economy. Oh, my goodness. What doesn't seagrass do? I, I have recently been using the term, you know, I feel like seagrass is really sort of the unsung heroes of the ocean. You know, I think we hear a lot about coral reefs and the value that they provide as far as our fisheries and recreation and the health of the oceans. But I would argue seagrass is just on their level with all of the services, the ecosystem services, we call them, that they provide. They, you know, sequester carbon. They stabilize the shoreline. They enhance water clarity. And they're, you know, probably the most direct economic impact is that they are um, a huge nursery habitat. So 70% of all fisheries species in Florida. So that includes, you know, the big economic ones that we like to eat, but also the ones that people like to come down here and fish are dependent on seagrass meadows at some point in their lifetime. So that's huge. Explain how nutrients interact with seagrass health, because Intuitively, you might think that more nutrients would mean healthier seagrass, but that's not the case, right? Yeah. So I always, so seagrass is very similar to like your typical house plant, right? So it has roots and it has leaves and it comes up. It just has all of these adaptations to exist underwater. And then, you know, I think we hear a lot about algae, macroalgae. So macroalgae is just bigger algae. It's seaweed. It's the kind that you can hold in your hand as opposed to something like red tide, which is microscopic. And so if algae and seagrass were a human body, the way I would say is seagrass 
is like a typical plant in that if you a human body were seagrass, you would absorb your nutrients through your feet or through your roots. But if you were algae, they just have so much more surface area where they can absorb it. And it's it would be more like absorbing nutrients through your skin. So they're so much more effective at it. And of course, you need a little bit of nutrients for anything to grow. But as you start to introduce additional nutrients into the water, the algae is just so much better at taking it up. And it grows really prolifically. And then it ends up shading the seagrass. And seagrass is a plant, so it needs light. And that ends up becoming an issue. Understood. It outcompetes the uh, the seagrass for the nutrients the algae does. Yeah. Huh. How did this program come about? So it started with my predecessor. Betty Stogler, who after Irma was getting reports from her stakeholders about algae in the area, and it was affecting the way that people fish, right? A lot of people know it as a snot grass. They cast and they they people like to fish on seagrass beds for all of the reasons that I mentioned before. And they were pulling up a lot of algae and they were and they were complaining to her. And she was able to sort of identify that we've been starting to see a real increase in algae in our local systems here. But for the large part, it was something that was relatively unstudied. And that's because algae is pretty transient, so it's just hard to study. And so she said, you know, we're blessed in Charlotte County with a very engaged volunteer base. And she said, I have an idea. We've got, you know, a lot of manpower here. And she connected with some professors and Sea Grant affiliates at the University of Florida and came up with a science-backed method that is very similar to what uh, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection uses in their seagrass monitoring, but it's just toned down just a little bit so that volunteers can get out there and execute it. And what is slightly different about that program is not only, you know, a little bit toning down of the intensity of the methods, but also the time of year that we go. So the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, at least in in the Charlotte Harbor Aquatic Preserves, goes actually probably right now. It's kind of like a late or kind of late, very late summer, early fall, because that's when seagrass growth tends to peak. Our volunteers go out in April and July, and those are sort of meant to capture the the trough and the peak of algae growth. So we sort of get that additional information as well. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, Eyes on Algae is not a particularly sexy program name, right, so right, that's right. not what we're leading with, but... <laughs> Understood. So you're not duplicating work and you're focusing more on the algae rather than the seagrass, but by extension, learning about the seagrass. Yeah, too. totally. And it's all it's all very interconnected. Rick, how did you learn about this program? And how did you, you know, what made you decide to become involved? You know, my wife is always looking for things in our local paper, volunteer opportunities. And she pointed it out to me, thought, you know, it's pretty neat. Uh, contacted a friend of mine who also has an interest in, in the water. Uh, Bob does some water quality sampling in our community of Punta Gorda. We went to the program that Kate put on, and uh, I was on board. Enjoy it. You already spent a lot of time on the water? Yes, I boated since I was a, a child. Uh, liked the fish, did some duck hunting on Southern Lake Michigan, uh, in the mid-80s on a vacation to Hawaii, my wife said, you know, let's learn to scuba dive. They have a recreational or a resort course. So 45 minutes later, I was in the ocean. 
I enjoyed it. Kind of got away from diving like for about 25 years, but this has helped pique an interest in, in diving, which I'm in the process of returning to. This is considered citizen science. Is that something that you were familiar with as a concept and or something you'd done in the past? Uh, my, my educational background is in the sciences. Undergraduate school, I was an environmental health science major at Indiana State University. From there, I went on to Podiatric Medical College, uh, practiced my profession for approximately 36 years in northwest Indiana. So this is your chance to do some, some nitty-gritty science. Yeah, you know, the thing I really enjoy, I've always enjoyed being on the water, but this gives me an opportunity to go out and when I return home to say, you know what, I did something good, something not only that I enjoy, but uh, hopefully has a positive impact for the world we live in. Well, let's talk about how it works. Uh, First of all, Kate, how does somebody become a volunteer before we talk about what they're doing? There is a local Charlotte County uh, website page that you can visit and get information on. Uh, Florida Sea Grant at large also just launched a citizen science page as well. So if you Google uh, Florida Sea Grant citizen science. There's other things to do besides monitoring algae and seagrass. Yeah. Florida Sea Grant, we're big on citizen science here. So um, tell us how it works. Um, If somebody volunteers, they are trained. So basically, we provide the training and the equipment necessary to do these surveys. We ask that volunteers provide their own transportation. Um, so, you know, Rick is a boater, so he uses Meaning his boat. Meaning to get to the seagrass, to not, get to, not, not to get to the edge of the water. Yes, <laughs> yes not to get to the edge of the water. Once you get there, uh, you could use a boat. Uh, we've got a fair amount of kayaking groups. We do our best to um, try to pair people up as well if we've got people that can't get out on the water at all and people with boats that don't have a team we try to connect them so we have in-person trainings we also have some online resources and basically through whatever method of those works for you we go over the methods and like i said it's that scientifically backed procedures and then basically we turn we turn people loose and then we assign sites to folks and they have two weeks to go out and visit their site and execute those methods just once. Rick, explain uh, for our radio listeners in a way that they can understand what these methods are, how big the zone is that you look over, are you going underwater or just waiting in it, stuff like that. Yeah, and I think this was done by FWC. They set up one square nautical mile grids in Charlotte Harbor. So as surveyors... As part of the the Fisheries Independent Monitoring Program. We're assigned grids as many or as few as we want. Typically two to three would be a typical assignment, right, Kate? Would I, I would say two to three would fill a day, but we've got we've got folks that would like Rick that'll go out multiple days or sometimes we've got uh, people who don't want to spend that much time on the water and they just do one. Hmm. So we navigate to the uh, grid we've been assigned to, anchor the boat. Uh, you're typically in water that's no deeper than chest high. As Kate had mentioned earlier, seagrass needs light, sunlight. Mm. So as you get into the deeper waters of Charlotte Harbor, the water is brownish in color from all the tannins that run down the Peace River, so sunlight can't penetrate in, in deeper water. Uh, we deploy then from an area close to our boat, a 50-meter transect line. The only requirement is that it be perpendicular as possible 
to the shoreline. We do six sampling sites starting at zero meters and in every 10 meters we use a half a meter grid that we drop randomly on the bottom along that transit line. We're looking for on a percentage basis the amount of seagrass cover in that grid, the amount of algae cover. Uh, we look for parasitic organisms on the seagrass. We attempt to identify the type of seagrass. Uh, in one area, we clear out all the macroalgae, which is sent up to the University of Florida yeah. lab, right, mm -hmm. to, to take a look at. We record the depth that we're at in each site. Are you snorkeling down to the bottom so you can see up close? You know, you typically can use a snorkel. Uh, I had a young lady that went with us, Ashley Cook from the Charlotte Harbor Environmental Center. Ashley was a demon on snorkeling. I mean, she <laughs> loved it, and she was very good at it. We also used an underwater viewing tube oh. that allowed us to look into the seagrass. A lot of the sites, I would say, are shallow enough that you could probably just like stand and put your face in the water. You might not need a, you'll probably need a mask or, or goggles at the very least to see it, but not a snorkel per se. Yeah, the only time you might want to get under the water would be to measure the blade length hmm. of the individual seagrass plants. I think we record three of those on each type of seagrass we encounter. Do boaters ever come by and ask you what you're doing? Never. We do fly <laughs> a diver down flag. Uh, they probably think we're goofy because we're trying to scuba dive or snorkel uh, in the harbor. And, and there are probably people that do know what we're doing out there because it gets a fair amount of publicity in the local media. And so this data that's being collected by volunteers is all sent to you and the people that are doing this research, and it just gets aggregated, and it gives you sort of longitudinal understanding of, of what? Seagrass health? Yes. Uh, seagrass troubles, you know? So some of, the, some of the big metrics that you can tell for seagrass health is, of course, the, you know, First of it, like how much there is, which the water management districts in general tend to do that. They'll do a, a flyover and they'll look at like where the edges of the seagrass is. The type of surveys that we do, of course, because you, you can't see up close when you're flying over, is like we get down and we look at the coverage. So we look at the, the, the Rick mentioned, the thickness of, you know, think of it as a forest. You would, you would want a really thick, dense forest. And then we look at... Um, also, the type of species, which gives us sort of an indication of the health of the system. I mean, much the way when you go to a forest and there's like a lots of like tiny, you know, right. tiny, like, you know, different smaller trees versus like, you know, big giant oaks. Those say very different things about the system. So we collect information on the species, the coverage, and then uh, Rick mentioned the length as well. And that gives us a measure, like I, guess, like I said, you know, an old growth forest is much different than a very young forest where those trees are tiny and small. How many different kinds of seagrass are there in these waters? So our volunteers focus on three, the sort of the three main sort of marine species. And then there's also uh, tape grasses sort of up in the, in the freshwater systems. Are they distinct enough that they're easy to tell the difference, Rick? I was about to say. They were a lot easier this year than last year just because of experience. Huh, interesting. And we are provided with visual photographs. They're laminated in plastic, so we carry those with us into the water. And that certainly can help in identification of individual species. 
how are seagrass populations, or I don't know if that's the right terminology, but seagrass, um, how is it doing in Charlotte Harbor and the areas that you're monitoring? You know, not great. Um, between 2018 and 2021, I think it was, we had a, a real significant drop off. There was an average of 23% loss of coverage in the Charlotte Harbor Aquatic Preserves. And that's an average. So, you know, places like the east wall of Charlotte Harbor, which a lot of fishermen notice because it's a big uh, fishing spot, lost 50% of their seagrass coverage. Since then, there has been a slower a slower decline which is which is good to see as well but there's also been sort of a shift in species so turtle grass which is the grass that you probably think of when you think of seagrass it's like you know it's pretty long it's i would compare it to oh you're supposed to do it with pasta noodles maybe linguine maybe like it's it's flat and it's long and that's the stuff that you think of that's like the pinnacle of a seagrass community it takes a little while to establish but once it's there it's like we did it and we're we are starting to see this shift towards some other seagrass species which they're shaped a little bit more like uh, spaghetti, I would say. Like they're they're thinner. Some of them are round. Some of them are flat or like chives. I often we refer to some of the volunteers. Um, it's starting to shift a little bit towards those species, which are hardier. Like, you know, so they can sort of tough it out in those harsher environments, but don't necessarily offer qu- quite the same benefits that turtle grass does. Do you know if there are places in Florida waters where seagrasses are doing particularly well? So actually, um, Tampa is actually doing, is actually, you know, is sort of one of the success stories that people, that is touted in the field as far as like getting seagrass to come back. We get a lot of questions in general about seagrass restoration and can we plant it and can we bring it back? And Tampa is one of those success stories where there was a lot of efforts to mitigate non-point source solutions. So for lack of a better term, just kind of general pollution. It's not like you could point to it and be like, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. And there was a lot of efforts to manage that. And the water quality in Tampa then increased. And they actually saw seagrass sort of starting to come back in some of those places, which is great. Seagrass is really resilient. So if you give it some space and let it breathe, it will it will sort of patch itself up. Is seagrass sort of the canary in the coal mine for an estuary or body of water's health? You know, I think there's been a lot of conversation about what the canary in the coal mine is. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say based off of these ecosystem indicators that, yeah, there's definitely some some red flags going up for sure. I understand that there's hope of moving it uh, or expanding it to Lee County. Is that something that you can tell us anything about? Yeah, totally. We are working on that this year, hopefully. So uh, like Rick said, our sampling method that we use in Charlotte Harbor is based off of those FWC fisheries independent monitoring grids. And those grids exist all over the state because FWC monitors fish all over the state. So I'm currently working with our local FWC office in Port Charlotte to sort of flesh out locations down here and hopefully we'll be able to come and offer uh, in-person trainings as well as kits and get people deployed to go in uh, uh, Matt Lachey and Pine Island. Hmm. Um, Rick, um, give us one last pitch for becoming a volunteer and helping with this effort. Is this something that, you know, you've obviously explained that it's something that you like and, and you enjoy personally, but is it also a sense of community among volunteers? Absolutely. Yep. It's good for the community. It's good for our environment and it's fun to do. Uh, We live in a beautiful state, a lot of outdoor opportunities. This is a good one. 
pulls it all together. All right. Well, thanks for coming in and explaining it to me and our listeners. That is all the time we have. Uh, Kate Rose is a UF-IFAS Sea Grant agent who works out of the Charlotte County office. Kate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. And Rick Sluzeski is an Eyes on Seagrass volunteer. Rick, thanks to you as well. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it. We're going to end today's show with the sixth installment of the audio essay series, Reflections of a Colored Girl, from Dr. Martha Beretta. That has been airing weekly during Morning Edition and All Things Considered here on WGCU. Dr. Beretta was born in southwest Florida in 1945, but spent the first 10 years of her life in a small town in western Virginia before her family moved back to Punta Gorda, where they have deep roots. In my life, I have found myself as a colored a Negro, a Black, an African-American, and a person of color. This is my reflection as a colored girl. My grandmother, Martha Andrews, for whom I was named, had a saying, that doesn't mean us. And she abided and lived by that saying, that doesn't mean us, her entire life. But what did it mean? These four words impacted her self-identity and her self-determination. Granny, as I knew her, was central in influencing my true identity. Though I was labeled a colored girl, I, of course, knew that I had to obey Jim Crow laws or be punished. However, I knew that I was to never give up my human dignity by going to the back door of a restaurant or shopping where I was not respected which is what I never did. That doesn't mean us. When asked about her race or ethnic background, Granny would say, I'm a third, a third, a third. Her mother was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. Her father was born of an enslaved woman of color and her white master. Granny respected all aspects of her bloodline. The one-drop rule of black blood did not apply to her. My grandmother was a woman who was respected by colored and whites. She had both as close friends. My grandmother was a very giving woman who followed the cultural traditions of giving back to the community and especially honoring and taking care of elders in the community. She actually built a house and cared for a local elderly woman who had no family. During the 1930s, my grandmother was one of three people who formed the first NAACP chapter in our community. Granny taught me that I could achieve anything in life that I wanted. She did. She had three life goals, to have a family, to become a nurse, her mother was a midwife, and to visit the Holy Land. She married, had three girls, and lived a very prosperous life. Granny achieved her second goal, even though she did not graduate from high school. Instead, she, like others of her age group, attended night school for adults at Baker Academy in Ponta Gorda. She received her private duty nursing certificate by mail order. Her skills and bedside manner were well known and much sought after. And in her elder years, she and her cousins went to the Holy Land I still have her scrapbook of that visit. Granny was a role model for me as a colored woman. She influenced my life choices in many ways. 
Dr. Martha Biretta is an author and lecturer and director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. She has written numerous books, the most recent being The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future, which was published last year. You can find all of the previous essays from the Reflections of a Colored Girl series by Dr. Biretta on our website, wgcu.org. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today Today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Richard Chen Kui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.